It's October 17th, 2022, and this is your DSR Daily Brief. I'm Grant Haver. And I'm Chris Cotnor. Our top stories from international outlets this morning. Russia launched its first ever attack on the Ukrainian capital using Iranian-made Shahed-136 drones early this morning, Kyiv's mayor wrote on Telegram. A fire broke out at a non-residential building in the central Shevchenkivsky district, while several residential buildings were damaged, according to the mayor. As of 9 a.m. local time, the regional military administration confirmed four strikes on Kyiv, adding that the enemy continues to attack. According to the report, a residential building was hit. The Kyiv Independent adds that kamikaze drones struck Kyiv Oblast for the first time on October 5th, hitting an undisclosed building in Bila Tsirvka, located some 75 kilometers south of the capital. Until today, Kyiv had remained untouched by the Iranian-made drones that Russia has increasingly used to strike targets across Ukraine. The BBC reports that Chinese President Xi Jinping said there would be no wavering on the zero-COVID policy because of the need to prioritize saving people's lives in a speech at the Chinese Communist Party Congress currently underway. There was not even the slightest acknowledgement of the social and economic pain being caused by the policy. Other massive challenges being faced by the government but which didn't get a mention include soaring youth unemployment and the property crisis. Instead, this nearly two-hour-long speech was heavy on standard party rhetoric and short on actual solutions to China's problems. The largest applause, no doubt scripted, came when Mr. Xi spoke about unification between mainland and Taiwan. He also defended the much-criticized state security law in Hong Kong, which he said had restored order to the city. Likewise, he justified the demolition and alterations to many mosques in the northern Chinese provinces of Ningxia and Xinjiang, home to a mostly Muslim population by saying that religions here must be Chinese in orientation. The Guardian, a liberal UK newspaper, reports that Liz Truss has sacked Kwasi Kwarteng as her chancellor and replaced him with Jeremy Hunt, ahead of a U-turn on key sections of her disastrous mini-budget as she launched a desperate attempt to restore her crumbling political authority. In a rapidly moving sequence of events, the Prime Minister first dismissed Kuartang, her longtime friend and ideological ally, as well as Chris Phillip, the number two minister in the Treasury, who is being moved to the Cabinet Office. The sudden reshuffle came just before Truss was due to hold an emergency Downing Street press conference at which she was expected to U-turn on plans set out last month to not raise corporation tax, part of a largely unfunded mini-budget that sparked turmoil in markets and shredded Truss's credibility just weeks into her role. The Prime Minister's own position is seemingly in peril, with Tory MPs actively plotting her downfall that she concluded sacking the chancellor was essential for her political survival. Elsewhere, this morning's Japan Times reports that Prime Minister Fumio Kishida 
said Monday that he has instructed the education ministry to investigate the Unification Church over its problematic spiritual sales tactics, which could pave the way for the group to be stripped of its religious corporation status. It is the first time the government will exercise its authority to investigate a religious group based on the religious corporation law, which allows the government to investigate religious organizations suspected of wrongdoing. The religious group came under scrutiny after former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was shot dead in July, with the suspect believing Abe had strong ties with the Unification Church. The suspected gunman reportedly experienced financial hardship after his mother donated more than 100 million yen to the church, essentially bankrupting the household. Under the law, if the group is deemed to be violating the law or conducting activities significantly damaging public welfare, the government has the authority to start the process of stripping the group of the status. A court will then decide whether that will go ahead. LeMond reports that the members of the K-pop band BTS will serve their mandatory military duties under South Korean law, their management company said this morning, effectively ending a debate on exempting them because of their artistic accomplishments. Big Hit Music said the band's oldest member, Jin, will revoke his request to delay his conscription at the end of the month and undertake the required conscription steps. The six other members also plan to serve in the military, according to the company's notice to financial regulators, which it describes as management-related information that could possibly affect investment decisions. Big Hit issued another statement on Twitter saying the company and BTS members are looking forward to reconvening as a group again around 2025 following their service commitment. Right-wing Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro and leftist former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva attacked each other's records in office on Sunday in the first debate of the second round of Brazil's election. Reflecting a fiercely polarized race that has been largely devoid of policy debates, the two candidates fell back often on personal attacks during two hours of debate, according to a report by Reuters. Lula said half of the 680,000 deaths caused by the COVID-19 pandemic in Brazil could have been avoided if not for delays in the purchase of vaccines by the government of Bolsonaro, who minimized the gravity of the virus and pushed unproven cures. Bolsonaro later took the offensive and blasted Lula for corruption scandals during the 14 years that his Workers' Party governed Brazil. Lula won 48% of the votes in the first round of the election on October 2nd against 43% for Bolsonaro, whose unexpectedly strong performance set the stage for a competitive runoff on October 30th. Al Jazeera reports that Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni has ordered an immediate lockdown and imposition of a dusk-till-dawn curfew for three weeks in two districts in a bid to stop the spread of Ebola. Places of worship, markets, bars, and entertainment will be closed, and restrictions have been placed on movement in and out of the two central districts of Mubin and Kassanda for 21 days. The health ministry said on Saturday that there have been 19 deaths and 58 confirmed cases of the often fatal viral hemorrhagic fever 
since the outbreak was first reported on September 20th. Authorities said the outbreak is concentrated in the two affected districts and has not reached Kampala, the capital of 1.5 million people, despite a husband and wife testing positive there. In lighter news, according to the AP, twins appear to be unusually abundant in Nigeria's southwestern city of Igbo Ora. Nearly every family here has twins or other multiple births. For the past 12 years, the community has organized an annual festival to celebrate twins. This year's event, held earlier this month, included more than 1,000 pairs of twins and drew participants from as far away as France, organizers said. That's all the news we have for you today. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. If you have a tip, topic, or correction you'd like to flag for us, please email us at podcasts at the dsrnetwork.com. Members of the DSR Network will receive an evening newsletter version of the DSR Daily Brief and bonus weekend briefs. Last weekend, we spoke with Jacob Stokes, a senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security, about the ongoing Chinese Communist Party Congress. Stay tuned to hear part one of that conversation. If you aren't a member, go to the DSRnetwork.com and become a member to make sure you never miss any of our analysis. If you want more in-depth discussion of these issues, be sure to follow the links in the show notes to read our sources and tune into our sister podcasts on the DSR Network. Stay safe and stay tuned to the DSR Daily Brief. Jacob, thanks for joining us. Hey, Grant. Uh, Great for having me. Hey, Chris. The 20th Chinese Communist Party Congress is set to kick off on Sunday. What happens at a typical Congress, and why should our listeners care about this one? Sure. So, you know, a nationalist or national Congress is at least nominally the highest leadership body for the Chinese Communist Party or the CCP. This is a meeting that takes place every five years and brings together around 2,300 members from across the party. A party has 96 million members for a week of meetings and ceremonies in the Great Hall of the People in Beijing. So this is the 20th time a party congress has happened since the Chinese Communist Party was founded in 1921. So these are are big deals. The events are highly scripted, and most of the decisions are hashed out well in advance. But I would say that several things of importance happen during the party congress or will happen during this party congress. First, we, we are likely to see Xi Jinping, China's leader, get a third term as general secretary of the Communist Party. China is a party state, but the party really rules. And this is a, a Communist Party meeting, not, not a meeting of the Chinese state. Xi Jinping will get, is likely to get a third five-year term as leader of the Communist Party. This has been sort of long forecast and telegraphed. So it won't necessarily be a surprise when it likely happens, but it's still the most important thing about this party congress, and it potentially sets up Xi Jinping to rule indefinitely going forward. Second, the congress starts out with what's called a work report, but it's basically a long speech that's given by Xi Jinping uh, that could be somewhat comparable to a U.S. State of the Union or inaugural address in the United States. It often takes several hours to actually read the whole thing, and it covers a full range of domestic and international issues. And it sort of frames how China has seen its its activities and progress over the last five years, 
but also sets a policy agenda going forward for the next five across almost every thinkable issue. And because of the way this document is produced, it's what we in the China studies field call authoritative. If you're looking for something that really represents what the Chinese government thinks plans on doing, you can look to their work report and find a, a reliable source. A third thing that you know, is likely to happen is, is we'll see changes to the Communist Party's internal constitution. We'll likely see those changes. Important ways, some of this can get pretty arcane and nonsensical, but I'll try to keep it top level. Essentially, things we're likely to see are potentially what China calls the two establishes. And this is in the party parlance that, that Xi Jinping is kind of the core or the center of the party, and that Xi Jinping thought his ideological thinking and writings will be given leading status as CCP ideology. That's at least what we expect is possible to happen here. This really matters because it helps T. Xi tie himself to the party, both as a man, as an ideolog- ideological agenda, and to kind of make himself indistinguishable from, from the party and therefore harder to separate. It's also sort of a barometer on Xi's grip on power. And then fourth and finally, and we, we can get down deeper into the weeds onto this, but we're likely to see, uh, or we will see changes to the leadership below Xi Jinping in the the Politburo, which is the top 25 officials in China, and the even more elite Politburo Standing Committee, the top, uh, what's currently a group of seven people, but has been slightly different sizes in the past. And importantly, we'll we'll see uh, China's premier, Li Keqiang, retiring, and so someone else will be stepping in as, as premier, and that will be particularly important because that job oversees the economy in China or has historically all those kind of questions about uh, the degree to which Li Keqiang has been able to do that. So those are kind of the big buckets of issues that we can expect to see coming out of the party congress. Hey, Jacob, I feel like the Chinese government is a bit of a black box for most Americans. Could you just talk a little bit about the government in general and then how that sort of relates to the party and how they operate on a day-to-day basis. In general, I think it's important to understand this concept of a, of a party state. So China is not, does not have a government like you would in, in Western countries where you know, the, the state and the government is kind of the main actor. In China, the party is, is the main actor. And this is the, the Chinese Communist Party that has ruled the People's Republic of China since they won the Chinese Civil War in 1949. And so what that means is that what the leadership changes and the political trends that are happening in China's Communist Party shape the affairs of the state. And one important factor to note is that Xi Jinping has been, this is at the end of his second five-year term in power. So he's been in power nearly a decade. And one of the major trends that, that Xi Jinping has carried out is he's kind of reinserted the role of the party into the state to a greater degree than we've seen really since Mao Zedong, uh, China's founding leader. And because there were major excesses in, in the Mao era that, you know, what was known as the, the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward, where many Chinese people died, and it was kind of driven by a lot of ideological actions. In the aftermath of that, Chinese leadership tried to be less ideological and more practical and technical in their governance, and to cede some of the power from the party to the state. So kind of bureaucrats with technical expertise overseeing their areas of jurisdiction. 
But that pendulum has now sort of swung back in important ways under Xi Jinping. And so we see the role of political ideology, the role uh, of becoming more important in the day-to-day life, uh, not just of people in the government, but, but everyday Chinese people, but also a move away from kind of technical and pragmatic governance in, in some key areas. And so I think one of the practical effects of that for Chinese people on a day-to-day basis is, is something like what we see with the, the zero COVID policy, China's very strict protocols for handling COVID-19. Even though much of the rest of the world, including many of China's neighbors, has, have moved away from a strict sort of quarantine and lockdown policy of handling COVID-19, China's still sticking with, with a very, very strict zero COVID policy. And that me- that's beginning to, to really weigh on the economy and cause a lot of challenges in that respect. But it's seen by the government and by Xi Jinping himself as kind of a signature achievement in China's handling of, of, of the pandemic. So I think what's important to know about the role of the party in China and, and that it's growing is there's less room for dissent overall and less room for kind of policy debate. And that's, that has practical effects in terms of what the government does day to day. So I tend to think of Xi as going for a third term, bringing the party more into the government and sort of Xi Jinping thought as being a thing that's actually going to partially crumble China because you need the bureaucracy and the the structures to keep from a personal authoritarian regime, which I see as very weak. Do you think that's the case? Do you think this is potentially problematic? Or do you see this as like, Xi just wants to be the best and five years from now, he'll shuffle off and be just another former grandee. It's pretty clear that Xi Jinping intends to rule for the indefinite future. One of the things about what had previously been sort of seen as the the Chinese system in at least the last two decades under Xi Jinping's two predecessors, Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin, was essentially you would get two terms, but at the end of your first term, your likely successor would be brought up into the high ranks of the government, at least the Politburo, if not the Politburo Standing Committee, and so that you could begin to train them and there'd be kind of a sense of policy continuity. But in effect, what it also did was make Chinese leaders, there's a little bit of a lame duck kind of uh, dynamic going on, like we would have in the United States as, as people start to look to the leader in waiting rather than the leader who's, who's already there. And so Xi Jinping wanted to avoid that status. In addition, there's always kind of a balance in the post-Mao, and especially the post-Deng Xiaoping era in China. There was a move away from kind of centralizing authority. And in the Chinese system, the result had been in, in a couple decades that there were kind of fiefdoms within the government, within different factions. And one of the effects of that had been a, a growing corruption, and especially as the Chinese economy grew, there were a lot of opportunities to use political power for, to build wealth. And so when Xi Jinping came to power, he saw his predecessor, Hu Jintao, who is universally considered a pretty weak leader, in part because he was subject to these, to these forces, and wanted to fix that. 
because it was important to him. He thought to be able to carry out his agenda, he needed to address corruption in the system and re-centralized power and bring back kind of ideological fervor in, in the party. Of course, at the same time, he used that, especially the corruption crackdown, to take out his political enemies uh, in different factions of the party and thereby remove people in the system, most of whom were legitimately corrupt because a lot of the system drives you to that place, but also that could have been alternative power bases to Xi Jinping and is pretty systematically, very systematically gone about taking out what could be alternative power centers, both in the government, but also in, in society in places like large tech companies. I would say that over time, that certainly authoritarian governance, the record is pretty bad over a long period of time. But I think within the context of, of China, Xi Jinping had an argument that if the Chinese Communist Party was going to stay in power, that he needed to do something about these kind of fiefdoms and especially corruption. And so he really set about consolidating power around himself, but also carrying out a theory for how to make the party party control over China more sustainable in the, in the decades to come. Earlier, you mentioned China's zero COVID policy. I was wondering if you see that changing, if, they, if they're, they've faced incredible backlash, you know, if that's something that would change anytime soon, you know, given the slowing economy. Many observers have been looking to the 20th Party Congress as uh, a potential kind of pivot point or a moment when you could see a major shift in China's policy. I think that's unlikely to happen for a few reasons. One is that, and this is somewhat emblematic of the rigid policy discourse in China, is there's kind of a circular argument about zero COVID being, being effective. I think Basically, the argument is during COVID, you saw high rates of infection, but, but also deaths in the United States and other places around the world due to uncontrolled COVID-19, and that whatever the costs of a zero COVID policy, that those very high numbers of deaths were not evident in China. Now, their official counts are probably too low, but, it's, but it stands to reason that at least deaths from COVID-19 have not been at, at quite the same levels as they were in, in other parts of the world. And so that kind of argument is, but is, has been sustained. But then the question is, uh, you know, how long after the rest of the world has opened up and stopped doing lockdowns can this policy be sustained, especially as new, more transmissible variants make the difficulty of doing zero COVID style lockdowns harder and harder over time? And then there's just sort of the challenge of, you know, China doesn't yet have its own highly effective mRNA vaccine like we have uh, in the Pfizer vaccine and Moderna and, and others in, in the West. That's been a major flaw in, in China's policy response that uh, I think would also be sort of a prerequisite for moving to, um, uh, to a more open policy. But I think this broader question of how much economic pain as a result of zero COVID, will it take to induce a policy shift is very much an open one. Because whether it's uh, zero COVID or the crackdown on education or technology companies, Xi Jinping has shown a willingness to sustain pretty large amounts of economic pain 
and see a, a, a major slowdown in China's economic growth in order to advance its preferred policies. So, but where the threshold is for a, a policy change has is you know remains to be seen. 